Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, June 28th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. These are today's headlines. One hundred and fifty-one people remain missing after a devastating condo collapse near Miami. This as new information continues to come in, outlining potential structural issues with that building after a 2018 inspection. President Biden authorizing precision airstrikes along the Syria-Iraq border. The White House saying those airstrikes targeted Iranian-backed militias threatening U.S. personnel and facilities in Iraq. And a daily vaccination... And daily vaccinations hitting a new domestic low as the highly infectious Delta variant continues to spread. The strain now making up 20% of coronavirus cases here in the United States. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. It's been five days since a tragedy first unfolded in Miami, a 12-story condominium building in the town of Surfside partially collapsing, a disaster some experts are now calling the worst accidental building collapse in U.S. history. Now, 151 people remain missing and 10 occupants have been confirmed dead. As the search and rescue efforts continue, neighboring cities are now taking action to prevent another tragedy. It's been five days of anguish and desperation. We're doing our best to hold it together. I mean, we're not doing <laughs> The Surfside community finding ways to cope with the grief after Thursday's collapse of the residential building Champlain South. You know, I'm concerned about my mom. I wonder if she was sleeping. I wonder if she got woken up. You know, she didn't call any of us. Her phone's on over the weekend, authorities transporting the families of those still missing to the site of the collapse in hopes of finding answers, comfort, and to see with their own eyes how the search and rescue teams operate. Their work getting the fire and the smoke under control was very, very pivotal, and, uh, and the good weather today were two very positive developments in the search, and they have allowed the search and uh, rescue effort to move forward without some of the previous challenges that we have faced. The search has been meticulous to prevent further collapse. A huge tunnel 40 feet deep has been created underneath the structure to facilitate access to potential pockets. Expert teams from Israel and Mexico assisting in the efforts. There was a very difficult question that was asked by one of the family members and the question was in so many words uh, Commander of the Israeli Search and Rescue Team, do you think that uh, the Miami-Dade team has been doing a good job? And everybody paused for a second, and the commander turned around and looked at everybody and said, I think they've been doing a perfect job. That said a lot. But for the families, the search has been painstakingly slow, and patience is running out. I'm a mother. I don't know the best way to go about this but it's impossible that in four days nobody has emerged, dead or alive. Please don't tell me about the two people. I know about it. It's not enough. Imagine if your children were in there. You're gonna leave here and you're gonna take a nice picture. And I know you're doing everything you can, but it's not enough. You gave us a promise and you're not fulfilling it and you can fulfill it. 
Red tape is not important when my daughter is dying. I understand the grief. I speak as a daughter. I speak as a sister. These people are trying to help us. It's not them against us. Many holding on to hope that good news will soon emerge from the rubble. The concrete is not just pancake. There are there are in multiple different directions. There's absolutely survivors in here. There's no question about it. There are survivors in there. Um, I hope it's my family and I hope it's everybody. Meanwhile, more victims identified. Among them, 26-year-old Luis Bermudez and his mother. This New Jersey family in Florida on vacation, describing how they narrowly and luckily escaped. All I was thinking was we need to get out of here before this building completely comes down on us. Um, after seeing the walls and, and how badly and violently they swayed, um, I honestly don't know how it didn't come down when we were startled. Um, so basically out of our sleeve. The question in everyone's mind now is how did this collapse happen? This engineer who conducted an inspection on the building in 2020 telling CNN what he saw. I saw cracks in the stucco facade. I saw deterioration of the concrete balconies. I saw cracks and deterioration of the garage and plaza level. But those are all things that we're accustomed to seeing, and that's why our job exists to maintain and repair the buildings. The city of Miami and other towns along the coast now ordering inspections on all buildings at least 40 years old. We are immediately putting in plans to check 59 buildings that are either at the 40-year mark or have just went through the 40-year recertification. Because ultimately, we need to understand if there was anything that was missed, anything that we can do, how we can help, how we can mitigate for something. An inspection report from 2018 first outlined major issues with that building. Let's go to Stephanie Walkup. She's an engineering professor at Villanova University. Thank you for joining us, Professor. The 2018 report showed cracks and breaks in the concrete. What was your reaction to the material inside this document? Yeah, thanks for having me, Lorraine. Um, first, I want to say the 2018 report is really a visual inspection. Um, and the cracks and the spalling that we see there are consistent with deterioration of a 40-year-old building and um, in need of repair. But the report is certainly brief. Uh, it is a preliminary report, and further investigation was obviously being conducted in that there are 2021 uh, repair plans for the building. Um, the waterproofing detail that the engineer identifies as being deficient uh, at the pool deck is something that was very difficult for the engineer or any engineer to investigate fully uh, without removing the um, pool deck tiles and the topping slabs. So we see uh, distress, but understanding the extent of distress throughout the entire structure is difficult to assess from, from again, this, this shorter report. Should this report have raised alarm bells and added urgency to carry out those repairs? Well, so we need to understand that, again, in a 40-year-old building, we are going to expect to see some concrete cracking. Concrete does crack. We reinforce it for that reason. And when concrete cracks, that allows moisture to infiltrate the concrete and corrode reinforcing steel. So there do come times such as these that we need to repair our concrete. Um, again, we build in safety factors to our designs as engineers. Uh, we design for a specific load, and then we increase the load beyond that so that our structures have these inherent safety factors in them. So we know as engineers that we can allow some deterioration to occur 
but yet the structure will retain its strength sufficient to still carry its design loads. Without knowing the extent of the deterioration, it's difficult to determine right, the exact time at which a structure is going to fail. And Professor Waka, what can you gather from the surveillance video of the building's collapse of failures in the construction? Yeah, so the video um, is somewhat telling in that you see a rigid body movement of the entire center of the building first. If you look at the upper level columns, they remain the same height. And so that indicates that the failure is occurring down towards the base of the building. Whether it's at the pool deck or parking level or somewhere slightly above that is difficult to ascertain. But it does appear that the failure is in the center part of the building and lower towards the structure. Uh, the collapse is unfortunately what we don't want as structural engineers in that it's progressive. Uh, progressive collapses are when we lose the majority of a building when we have a localized failure. And again, that's something that we don't want to occur. And progressive failure uh, came to light, especially back in the late 1960s through the early 1980s uh, with several notable concrete building failures. So we do know um, that progressive collapse can occur in some of these structures, but we usually see it at the time of construction. We don't usually see it once the building has been constructed because concrete gains strength as it ages. So the most critical time in our concrete buildings without deterioration is really when they're being constructed. And Professor, the building's located right next to the beach and a lot of the Florida coast is, you know, constructed in this way with so many properties that are beachfront. What effect can salt water have on the structure of buildings such as this one, either from salt in the air or salt water intrusion? Yeah. So concrete itself um, has a high alkalinity. It actually protects reinforcing steel uh, well, even when we don't epoxy coat our reinforcing steel. But over time, as the salts um, enter into our concrete, um, as well as, as the concrete carbonating, we can lose the alkalinity of the, of the concrete itself, and we can lose that protection around the reinforcing steel. Uh, reinforcing steel um, is not a naturally occurring material. We process it, and when we do that, we store energy in, this, in the steel. Uh, once that steel is exposed to water, particularly salt water, um, which can accelerate corrosion and oxygen, it wants to revert back to its original state, and that's an iron oxide, or what we know commonly as rust. Uh, so salt water, um, we do know, does accelerate corrosion. Um, particularly, again, as concrete structures age and the concrete loses its alkalinity. They, we should also note, though, that, you know, as engineers, we have protections that we can give our structures as well. Um, we have sealants um, and coatings that we can utilize to protect the concrete and uh, to protect the reinforcing steel. Well, it will definitely be so interesting to see what exactly happened in this tragic case. Thank you so much, Villanova University engineering professor Stephanie Walkup. Thanks for having me, Lorraine. And meanwhile, we're learning more about some of those who remain missing after the deadly collapse of the Champlain Towers. Ana de Mendoza has more on a Cuban-American couple who considered their apartment just north of Miami Beach their own piece of paradise. Arnie and Miriam Notkin are a Cuban couple who live in apartment 302 at Champlain Towers in Surfside, Florida. That apartment part of more than 50 that collapsed late last week. 
Her grandson, Jake Samuelson, says that his family received a series of phone calls, 16 to be exact, on Thursday, following the building's collapse in the early morning hours. The calls coming from the landline number that belonged to his grandparents. But on the other side of those calls, nothing but static. On Friday, he says, they received another 15 calls, only to find the same sound on the other end. They notified the authorities, and over the weekend, no more calls came in. I'm at the beach. On Facebook, Mira Notkin had posted photos of her usual walks along the beach. In those images, you can see the Champlain Tower South Building, her home, intact and standing. She wrote on Facebook about how much she loved her apartment, the view from the unit in the late afternoons, rainbows that she would spot, and posts about spotting big storms heading toward the coast. Both loved Latin music, especially music from their home country, Cuba. The couple residing in the island in the 1950s before eventually making their way to Miami. Not knowing that years after moving into this condo building just north of Miami Beach, their beachside home would turn into the worst accidental building collapse in U.S. history. On May 3, 2020, Arnie celebrated his birthday, and his friends and families prepared a special surprise for him. Taking advantages of the apartment's location on the third floor, and with help of local police and firefighters, a group of well-wishers with signs and messages celebrating this grandfather's birthday. Inside, his wife ready with cake and candles to blow out. These images and those memories showcasing how precious life can be and how quickly everything can change. Reported by Galo Arellano in Miami, this is Ana de Mendoza, U News. Parishioners and survivors attended a Sunday service at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Surfside, Florida to pray for the victims and families of those still missing after the devastating collapse of their building. Joining us now is St. Joseph's priest, Father Juan Sosa. Thanks for being here, Father. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How emotional was this past Sunday's services and every service since the collapse? I could tell by the faces of the parishioners how um, moved they were. Kind of a, a little bit of a somber type of uh, approach or reflection, but uh, they were emotional, particularly when I mentioned the names of the known families that, uh, that lived and resided in the building. Uh, remember, 80, 80 condos fell apart. I mean, the whole 80 of them, but the ones that I really knew were probably about eight of them. and. They were indeed uh, uh, eight families, which were out between 25 and 30, and they were indeed very, uh, very touched when, when I mentioned their names, when I mentioned the relationship to the church, uh, the girl that uh, made First Communion, the baptism of her sister, the, the parents who used to come to religious education, etc. I, I think that when you, when you bring into prayer the real-life people, that makes a difference indeed in, in this situation. And now, Reverend, that you mentioned some of the sacraments, you touched on this, but one of the missing um, is 11-year-old Lucia Guara. She received her first communion at your church, and several yes. other residents of the towers or parishioners there have, as we've been speaking. How are you coping with the aftermath of this tragedy, personally? Right now, right now I'm, I'm between the uh, shock and the availability to both the press, the first respondents and their families when I meet them. I just came from the rescue center 
and uh, I met one of the families of one of the ladies that lived in one of the apartments, obviously, some members of the family. I mean, coping with it uh, has a lot to do with the serenity and the peace that you received from your faith experience, but also from your idea and your desire to serve others. And I, I, there's a lot of our parishioners who would like to do that. They like to serve, they like to volunteer. And I believe Catholic Charities will be organizing that service. There's many people volunteering throughout uh, uh, this whole city of uh, Surfside and including Miami Beach. And so we're getting calls from everywhere to be able to see what can we do. Right now, our parish parking lot is uh, making the spaces available to uh, obviously first respondents, to the press, the media, and then uh, our priests from the archdiocese or chaplains to the police and the firefighters are visiting obviously the the uh, uh, rescue center, and they're moving into another hotel, so we'll be going there too as well. And Reverend, how are you comforting the community at your church and beyond? What is your message? Right now, we're placing a, we're placing a, a kind of a book so that people at least can verbalize the names of the people and friends that they knew from the building. Uh, they are actually, I think, mostly prayer and faith and hope. I think they come back together, and I encourage them not to forget about their own lives and how to live family ties and how much how much strength we receive from our humanity. I am very, very grateful for the humanity level that we are experiencing from all the sources of Miami-Dade and even beyond from Europe, from South America, people that are connected to us through tragedy, as if, you know, as, as if something wonderful may surface uh, light in the midst of the chaotic feelings and the tragedy that we're undergoing. Well, thank you so much, Reverend Juan Sosa of St. Joseph's Church in Surfside. You're welcome. And now we turn to Washington, where over the weekend, President Biden ordered airstrikes on Iranian-linked militias, the attack targeting sites along the Iraq-Syria border. But the strikes are raising tensions as Shia militia groups claim they are ready to retaliate. Andrea Linares has the latest. This video from a pro-militia outlet in Iraq claims to show the aftermath of the recent U.S. airstrike on the Iraqi-Syrian border. An Iran-backed Shia militia group in Iraq known as Qatayb Hezbollah said that at least four Iran-backed fighters were killed in the airstrikes. The group writing a statement warning, this crime will not go unpunished. The airstrike, which was ordered by President Biden, targeted sites that were suspected of using drones to attack American forces in the region. According to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby, the U.S. strikes targeted operational and weapon storage facilities at two locations in Syria and one location in Iraq, both of which lie close to the border between those countries. Returning to the White House from a weekend at Camp David, President Biden dodged questions on the matter, saying more information would be available throughout the day. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also issuing a statement saying, protecting the military heroes who defend our freedoms is a sacred priority. 
This is not the first military action ordered by Biden as commander-in-chief. President Biden ordered airstrikes in February against another Iranian-backed militia in Syria that was suspected of firing rockets at American forces. At that time, Biden generated concern from members of Congress who believed he should have asked for the necessary authorization first. But the White House argued that attacks like these are permitted by Article 2 of the Constitution as well as the United Nations Charter. The U.S. military has noted that there were no indications of civilian casualties as a result of the latest airstrike. Meanwhile, Iraq's Ministry of Defense condemned the strikes as a, quote, blatant and unacceptable violation of Iraqi sovereignty and Iraqi national security in accordance with international conventions. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And on Capitol Hill, a Washington police officer who was injured during the January 6th Capitol riot met with White House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Friday. Officer Michael Fanon asked McCarthy to denounce the conspiracies being spread by Republican lawmakers. He also wants the House Minority Leader to condemn House Republicans who voted against awarding the Congressional Gold Medal to officers on duty during the riot. Fanon was seriously hurt the day of the riot, he was hit with a stun gun several times, beaten with a flagpole, and then had a heart attack. Now to New York, where lawyers from the Trump Organization are expected to meet the Manhattan DA's office today in an effort to talk prosecutors out of pursuing criminal charges. According to sources, in per the in-person meeting follows a virtual conference last week about the district attorney's pending criminal claims against the Trump Organization. New York prosecutors told Trump lawyers the criminal charges could be filed against the organization as early as this week. An attorney for the Trump Organization told C. CNN that so far prosecutors have not been receptive to arguments to dismiss the case. Trump chief financial officer Alan Weiselberger is also expected to be charged for improper tax-free compensation and benefits he received. There is no indication at this point that Donald Trump or members of his family will be charged at this time. And growing concerns across the country about the highly contagious Delta variant. That strain now present in all but one state. But as Rafael Rodriguez explains, those worries much higher for states trailing behind when it comes to vaccinations. The Delta variant increasingly taking hold in America's unvaccinated areas, just as health experts had feared. We have parts of the United States where we don't have a lot of vaccination and we also don't have a lot of prior infection. And those are going to be the more vulnerable parts of this country. The CDC estimating the highly contagious variant now makes up more than 20 percent of new cases nationwide. And several states with vaccination rates below the national average are seeing troubling trends. Arkansas, one of four states where hospitalizations have jumped more than 25 percent. Those that are being hospitalized are those that have not been vaccinated. We've got to make sure that we do everything we can to get the word out. But the U.S. is now averaging only 688,000 doses a day, the lowest since the first week of January. The U.S. currently on pace to come up about 9 million shots short likely not hitting President Biden's July 4th goal of 70 percent of adults with at least one dose, a target the president already conceded we won't hit. But high vaccination rates in some major cities are a 
allowing them to safely shake off once heavy restrictions. People are going to get back to Broadway. People will come back to New York City. Crowds pouring into the streets of Manhattan for Sunday's Pride March. I'm so excited. I love the energy, the vibes. I think it's going to be a good time. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And in other vaccine news, AstraZeneca has started vaccinating participants in its trial of COVID-19 variant shot. The vaccine was designed to protect against the beta variants of the virus, which was first identified in South Africa. Test participants are both vaccinated and unvaccinated people. For unvaccinated people, the new shot replaces the usual second dose in a normal vaccination schedule. For vaccinated people, it's given as a two-shot series with 12 weeks between doses. No AstraZeneca vaccine, COVID vaccine, has ever been approved for emergency use in the United States. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. A massive heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, the thermometer hitting triple digits in areas that have never seen this kind of heat. Genesis Vieira has more on the unprecedented temperatures. The Pacific Northwest sweltering. More than 20 million people under some sort of heat advisory. Such hot temperatures in June is historical. We haven't seen anything like that. Trina Jensen from the National Meteorological Society in Portland says the Oregon City registered a high temperature of 108 degrees Fahrenheit on Saturday, and they could see even higher temperatures in the days to come. Residents in Oregon and Washington hitting stores to beat the heat, looking for portable air conditioning units. Temperatures running about 30 degrees hotter than normal for this time of year. So you might get nausea, headaches, uh, lightheadedness. Extreme heat like this, especially over long periods of time, can jeopardize the health of many, including those who have to work outdoors, like Daniel Triguero. The most important thing to use is a hat to protect your head from the heat and to make sure to stay hydrated. The National Weather Service issuing an alert for residents to protect themselves from the heat, especially those who are vulnerable, like elderly, pregnant women, infants, and young children. Reported by Romy del Frias, Genesis Vieira for U News. On Capitol Hill, a bipartisan deal to invest nearly $1 trillion in the nation's infrastructure appears to be back on track. This is after President Biden walked back his earlier instance that the bill would be coupled with an even larger measure backed by Democrats in order for him to sign it. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin? That's right, Lorraine. Now President Biden is saying that he regrets creating the impression that he was issuing a veto threat on the bipartisan plan he agreed to. And now he's saying that that was not his intent. Biden received criticism from Republican leaders on Capitol Hill because just 24 hours after announcing an agreement on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, 
Biden implied he wouldn't sign it without a larger deal on the table. Now the White House had believed that Republicans knew that two packages would move side by side and rejected the idea that anyone was caught by surprise as implied by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. But it was right after the opposition among moderate Democrats that President Biden issued a new statement. Biden's statement showing regret for the confusion is the latest effort by the White House to shore up support for the newly announced bipartisan agreement. Democratic Senator for West Virginia Joe Manchin said over the weekend he has no doubt that Biden supports the bipartisan deal and will sign the bill once it passes. The White House agrees. Take a listen. We passed the rescue plan. We're going to pass the jobs uh, plan, and we're going to pass the American Families Plan. And so we keep meeting the challenges that we face, and we keep leading with strategy and making decisions based on the people. And we expect to have uh, both bills in front of us uh, to sign. And I expect that President Biden will sign the infrastructure bill. He will sign the Families Plan. So far, the bipartisan deal includes an investment of almost $1 trillion in the nation's infrastructure, which is expected to help repair roads, bridges, water, and broadband internet across the country. But the question that remains is if the bipartisan group of senators who met with President Biden last week will be able to get the 60 votes needed to pass the bill in the Senate. Live in Washington, D.C., Lorraine, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. In Nogales, Arizona, Univision was able to capture several instances of migrants crossing the border with the help of a coyote. And as Aileen Cardet explained, it's just one of hundreds of similar crossings being made every day. Ten seconds was all it took for this migrant to cross the border wall in Nogales, Arizona. A human trafficker tied a rope around his waist and then started to release him over the wall. We have just arrived. We're waiting for the opportunity for them to fall asleep. The migrant crosses the street and starts running as fast as he can. Seconds later, a U.S. Border Patrol officer starts following him. Border Patrol says that a lack of agents has caused migrants to cross at this part of the wall, a few meters away from the border checkpoint. Obviously, we don't have enough agents to have them everywhere, but thanks to technology, it's like we have agents and we have eyes on the ground. While the agent was chasing one of the first people to cross, the smuggler continued helping more people cross, taking advantage of the fact that the only agent on the scene at that moment was trying to make an arrest. We waited for a week because the officer wouldn't let us through. The last migrant who came down ran, but all of a sudden, a Border Patrol agent appeared and arrested. The coyote, through the wall, said he would come back with more people, but he did not while we were at the border. These men crossed and we are trying to disappear in a crowd to get into a store, but we are always watching, thanks to the technology and our 24-hour surveillance. A total of five men crossed over the wall this time. The Coyote said they were Mexican nationals and that he didn't charge them to cross into the United States. Aileen Cardet, Yunus. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.